Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I want to give you a quick bio on my guest today, Denise Tordella. For more than 15 years, Denise has provided trauma-informed therapy for individuals who struggle with the reverberating effects of trauma, emotional, physical, and sexual abuse, addiction, survivors of suicide, and trauma-related issues. Today, Denise is going to be talking to us about coercive relationships and domestic violence. So just know that going in, if that's triggering for you, know that that gets discussed in this conversation. Denise works in the DC metropolitan area. She's trained in all kinds of things, sensory motor psychotherapy, EMDR, structural dissociation, and internal family systems. She has taught substance abuse counseling at the graduate counseling program at Johns Hopkins University and Northern Virginia College. She used to be the director of the co-occurring disorders program at a residential substance abuse treatment facility. And she has a master's degree in counseling from George Washington University and the University of Maryland School of Social Work. She specializes in trauma treatment, and she's my friend. I'm really excited to introduce you to Denise. Thank you for being here. Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am your host, as ever, Megan Reardon Jarvis, and I am delighted today to be here with my colleague, Denise Tordella. I have been stalking her and asking and begging for her to come have this conversation. And I think it's our third try, but we finally did it. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you, Megan, for inviting me. And I'm glad we were able to finally connect. It's a pleasure to be here. I've been listening to your podcasts, learning a lot from them and learning from your guests as well. And again, thank you for highlighting the importance of learning and educating ourselves as well as other therapists and other helpers about grief and that it's not just, you know, three days. It is not just three days. And you and I are both professionals in the field and grievers ourselves and lifelong learners of this process. Mm -hmm. So, you know, but what my audience is about to learn is that you are really an expert in your own right. And I would love for you to just sort of open up, like maybe just tell people why I really was hoping to have you on, let them know a little bit about your work and how you come into the field of grief and loss. Well, I come into the field of grief and loss as a trauma therapist. And so as trauma therapists, we spend a lot of time educating our clients, other therapists, family members about the reverberating effects of trauma. And sometimes people will say, oh, I totally get it. This is how it affected me. But what they don't sometimes connect with is the losses that they've experienced as a result of trauma. And in listening to your podcast and in talking with you, I know that you highlight that. And a lot of times we think of grief and loss related to death. Yes. Right. However, as we're all going through COVID and although many of us wish that COVID was in the rearview mirror, it is not. Also, we haven't even begun to process the grief and the loss related to our experiences with COVID. And 
over the years being a, a trauma therapist and I've spent 17 years doing clinical consultation and training for the city of Alexandria's domestic violence mm -hmm. and sexual assault program. And also 15 years working with a nonprofit organization in Alexandria called Friends of Guest House. And that's an organization that supports women who are returning to the community from a period of incarceration for nonviolent offenses. So the women are released from prison and come to guest house where they can live for six months while they begin to reintegrate into society and reunite with their families. And what we noticed in working with the women was there was tremendous amounts of grief and loss. And if we looked at where the grief and loss came from, we could take it back to trauma. Yeah. Uh, you know, we do a survey of how many of the women have experienced trauma and 80, 90% will say, oh yeah, I had some trauma. Yeah, it's fine. That was back then. But that we realized that pretty much a hundred percent of them have had trauma. They just didn't define it as trauma because it was normalized for them. In the beginning of the domestic violence movement, which was a grassroots women's mm -hmm. movement, it was like, yay, you're out of there. You're finally safe. Okay, come on, get on with your life. And for some women that worked, absolutely. For some survivors that worked, for some, not so much. So how do we begin to differentiate what's happening without pathologizing it, mm -hmm. without talking about things like, oh, she had to learned helplessness or she doesn't know how to advocate for herself. Right, you're right. She doesn't know how to advocate for herself because advocating for herself was never safe and it was never taught. So we begin to look at through the lens of, okay, now you're out of the relationship. What's next? You know, and we talk about, well, let's rebuild your life. Well, maybe it's not about rebuilding. Maybe it's actually about creating it. Let me ask a question, Denise. I never want to miss the opportunity to get a trauma therapist to define trauma. So I'm going to ask you to do that in a second. I also sort of my follow-up question to that is in the progression of the precipitating events, right? Like you are mm -hmm. in a coercive relationship. That's a dynamic. That's a battlefield that you're on. Mm -hmm. Then through the courage and the intervention and all of that, get you out of that relationship. There's a whole emotional upheaval in that experience. And what I am wondering about is you know, the progression, right? Like our American, like bootstraps progression, let's keep getting better. Let's keep getting better. And what I know from my work, but also from the work of the people that you, you know, study with and teach with people like Lisa Ferenz, that there is this period of time where sometimes people feel a whole lot worse because once you're out of the environment, then the feelings come. So can you first give us a working definition of trauma and then maybe talk to that perspective? 
for so many of us who work in the field, the way we define trauma is an event that literally overwhelms us. It overwhelms our capacities to cope, to make sense out of things. So in the in an, within the framework and the context of being in a relationship with someone who is supposed to love you and care for you and protect you, and they instead abuse you, control you, manipulate you, and many times perpetrate violence against you, mm-hmm. that is overwhelming. Yeah. That's not within our paradigm of what a healthy relationship is supposed to look like. And when we take that step back and begin to look at how the whole process of coercive control begins, how insidious it is, then we can begin to understand more about what the individual is experiencing. I think one of the things that we have to remember as as helpers is that we want to like rush in and snatch that individual out. Right. Oh, so what have we in effect just done when we do that? Like that constant question of why don't you leave? You know, go to that shelter. Like they'll take care of you. First, we have to begin to educate people about what has happened to them. We have to educate them about coercive control. I don't know how many times I've had women and men say, well, he never hit me. Yeah. But he didn't have to. I really like how you just described it, which is being overwhelmed, right? When a, when a person is overwhelmed, you don't have the same faculties of decision-making exactly. or action. And when you don't have the same faculties of decision-making or action, someone sitting next to you and saying like, but you could just go to that shelter is in and of itself shaming because yeah. they're talking to you like, what's wrong with you? Why can't, or anybody could do this without acknowledging I'm sure you see this, that when you pull someone away from those unhealthy dynamics, their body and their brains begin to have reactions and and maybe it's ultimately healing, but it isn't always immediately healing. No. And the research in that shows that the most dangerous time for a woman is when she leaves the relationship. As I say to my clients, the last thing he wants to see is your back as you go out the door. Because it's not about violence or what you did do or what you didn't do. It's all about power and control. And if you're walking out the door, then the abuser is losing control. And they don't just go, oh, well, so be it. You know, I'll find another partner. They're like, oh, no, Uh uh-uh. No way. And that's when people are most at risk for being severely injured or killed. I think one of the things that's misunderstood, right? When we talk about that power and control, I think the way they make it seem like on law and order is that the guy is a bully and I'm, and I'm going to use guy, even though I know that, but statistically that's the dynamic that we're most often talking about. The guy is a bully and he wants to exact his power over his domestic partner. 
what you come to understand when you are in this work is that the guy feels out of control. He cannot tolerate powerlessness. So it's often not just the domestic partner. It's all of the other ways. It isn't the Mm -hmm. dynamic isn't personal to this person. Mm -hmm. It's personal to this person while they're in the system. And that being able to define the illness, you are the victim of this illness, but we're actually both sick from it because Mm -hmm. is part of the trauma. Right. Right. Where does the grief, where do you see the grief pieces come in? Tell me about the loss and around these elements that are inside these relationships and, and where does the grief show up? Okay. So one of the places, sometimes that it shows up either when you're working with someone from a clinical perspective, or even if you're a friend or family member and you're kind of highlighting for them that this behavior that you're, that they're seeing is not normal. Okay. And so they, they're like, okay, yeah, but, and they'll say, but I'll miss him. And for some therapists, for some family members, they're like, are you kidding me? What are you going to miss? Right. But we have to acknowledge that. And we have to be aware, just as you said, as they're working through the dynamics of this relationship, there is confusion, there is ambivalence. And rather than going, what's wrong with you that you would miss this, to be able to validate that and to process their feelings and that we have to be comfortable accepting that wide range of emotions. It can be really hard when you're on the outside going, yeah, I get that maybe you would miss them, but also the likelihood of you being hurt is really, really high here. Yeah. So, and not pathologizing the survivor, but being able to work with the survivor through that ambivalence and through that confusion and labeling it what it is. Yeah. It's loss. When they got in grief, when they got into this relationship, they weren't like, oh yeah, let me sign right up for coercive control. Yeah. No, the relationship doesn't start off as abusive. That's right. It starts off with, you know, I care about you. Let me do this for you. Let me do that for you. You're wonderful. You're this, you're that. And then once the individual is in the relationship, then it shifts. Yeah. And it shifts very subtly. Like, oh, you're going to wear that? Oh, you're going to go have dinner with who? Oh, your friend, all she ever does is call here. What's up with that? Why do you talk to her so much? So it becomes very insidious. And you always want that part of the relationship where everything was rosy and peachy and loving and kind. So the person says to themselves, oh, if I don't, wear that dress, if I don't cook that meal, if I don't do this, it's a small I'll thing. Get back. I'm thinking about all the different levels across, uh, across this t- 
type of going to call it attachment violence. It's not just the loss of the relationship that you thought you had. It's the erosion, the little bits and bits of yourself that you once were, right? The person who liked to call her sister, the person who had friends, the person who wore what she wanted and felt good in those clothes, the person who wasn't edgy, wasn't trying to stop somebody from getting upset. And ultimately, if we're doing our best work, we're helping someone move away from that relationship. Mm -hmm. But they're moving away from that relationship, having embodied the trauma and the meaning. They're still the person who didn't see their sister for three years. Right, right. Exactly, exactly. And being able to acknowledge that without pathologizing it. Yeah. That's the most, you know salient piece to when you're working with survivors to not pathologize their reactions because in addition to the the trauma work I do as you can well imagine many people who have experienced trauma also have abused substances yeah and I will also work with people who will say the way I coped with it was I started drinking or I started taking pills or in order to bond with my partner, I started drinking, I started taking pills. And then that in and of itself, the alcohol and drug use becomes another way that their partner controls them. Yeah. So you think you're going to leave? You're drinking two bottles of wine a night. Who do you think is going to get the kids, me or you? That's right. Oh, you want to go and get treatment? Go ahead. Go ahead. And I'll turn you into child protective services. Or I'll tell my lawyer. Who's going to get the kids? Me or you? I've had women who say, I want to stop, but I'm terrified to stop. Because my partner uses it as a way to keep me quiet, to keep me compliant. Yeah. There's so much fear that goes unexpressed, right? Because we have to minimize the impact of the violence, however it's showing up. Right. There's so much fear that goes unexpressed that when we're saying, okay, we're going to, we're going to burn down this system. All of a sudden, what you see so much of is the fear coming out, which again, when we, when I'm thinking about all the words that people who are grieving talk about. Fear is a big one. Another one is the othering of feeling like you're the only person who's in this place. The number of people who, who have to hide everything about their domestic partnership, you know, marks on their body, but also just the truth of, I can't say yes to your very normal invitation to come to a picnic because- that that's going to cause a level of chaos in my relationship that's not worth it. It's not okay. I, we, I heard a quote that just so resonated for me where a survivor said, we learned the rules so well, we became our own prison guards. Yeah. So as you just said, someone says, Hey, let's go to on our picnic. They don't even ask their partner they're just like no we don't we don't do picnics we don't have hobbies we don't spend money we don't 
<clears throat> do any of those things. So there's that whole loss of autonomy and that loss of identity many times as part of the isolation, because as we've said, it's not just about the bruises, yeah. it's the isolation and economic abuse, the sexual abuse, the technology abuse is just so unbelievable yeah. as a method of control. Part of what you're describing is reminding me that that larger definition of trauma, right? It's the meaning that you make of the thing that either has happened or is happening to you, right? And so the meaning that you get when you're working with a survivor is so distorted from what you believe is possible, but their meaning is true. And that's true of people who you know, didn't have enough food as children. And so that was their trauma or didn't have enough parental attention or didn't have, you know, enough good health. And so we make meaning of those things unless someone can come in or there's some sort of influence or force that can come in and help us see different possibilities. But to see different possibilities, you got to let go of the territory and the terrain that you're in. And part of letting go is understanding you know, I think of all the work that I do with people where I'm not here to vilify your parents, but you deserve more support than that at age eight. You deserved a child should have more than that at age eight. You can't, you can't cross nine streets and get yourself to school and do your own laundry. What you see with that person is that understanding and devastation, right? That that is what they live through. Yes. And then for survivors of coercive control, that incredible shame right? It's palpable. And shame, as we know, also elicits a freeze response. That's right. We got to shut this down. This is way too uncomfortable to, I can't function. I can't get on with normal life if I'm saturated in shame. Can you give our audience a working definition of shame too? Because I think that's one of those words that we use really often and that clinically you and I know it, it actually has like a pretty specific meaning. I think both of us being body oriented psychotherapists, even if I say shame right now, like notice what happens on your body Yeah, and we're not talking about you, right? right. It's a very physiological response. Shame is I am inherently flawed, broken, bad, whereas guilt is, yeah, I did blow through that red light and I knew it was red, right? Yeah. But so again, it's, it's the meaning inside your system. It's yes. the meaning of who and you are. So and what That's right. Yeah. It's so I'd be interested to hear from our audience, but when you said shame, I had just like electric waves across my chest. Right. right? And we're not talking about ourselves. We're not talking about the concept. We're not even talking about something that I believe about myself, but it does, you know, a lot of us who've done our own personal trauma work, it is really to strip away the residual belief of X, Mm -hmm. Y, or Z. And those of us in the trauma field are sort of at different points, given a cheat sheet about what that shame might be. I'm not X enough. I don't have this. Right. And when we can strip back and say, I mean, I have the word enough tattooed on my wrist because that is the core is that there is not enough or I am not enough in order to relax, be safe and believe that the world is a place that I can just participate in rather than try to manipulate all the time. And that comes from childhood trauma for me. 
when you begin to strip that away, there is that like, oh my God, I lived so long in that belief system. And then the fear, which is like, well, what, what the hell do I do now? And also recognizing that living in that belief system was an adaptation that was a survival response, Megan. Yeah. Because when you are, as Lundy Barcroft calls it in one of his books, living with a terrorist, okay, that you have to somehow figure out how to cope. Yeah. Right. Because you still have to do things. You know, you have to go to work if you're still working, whatever it is, you have to get on with normal life. <clears throat> so if you buy into where I'm living is chaotic, unpredictable, terrifying, and I don't know what's going to happen next, that makes it really difficult for our nervous system to get on with normal life. That's right. But if we buy into what the abuser, the coercive controller, puts out there for us, which is, look what you made me do. Damn it. That's right. Okay. So if we say, okay, all right. So that happened because I did this. So therefore, if I don't do that, then this won't happen. And although we know that fundamentally that is not true, it is the one thing that gives us hope to mm-hmm. keep on keeping on, to continue to get on with that, albeit limited and sometimes maladaptive, normal life, air quotes around normal life. That's right. Because it's look what you made me do. Because part of this whole process is this is your fault. I have no accountability as the abuser or responsibility for what's happening here. This is your fault. And just to make it, you know, what it's making me think of is sort of, you know, just normal reactivity in a couple. Even if we stepped it back from anything that was emotionally coercive or abusive, if I come in and ask my husband with a tone of voice, why are all the boys cleats on the porch? His response, that that his biophysical response, which is adaptive, is to understand that he is under attack and he doesn't know why. He may have even had a very good reason for having the cleats. But as soon as you are startled, right, into a defensive positioning, and, you know, my husband is a pretty relaxed guy, but he's going to jump into a state of defensiveness. And when we're in that startled state of defensiveness, we are not creative. We're not thinking very well because the electricity is not getting to our frontal lobe. You know, so when, when I'm thinking about all the, all those cases, all the domestic violence cases, all the times that people have to prove and prove again, that they need a restraining order, which we know isn't even going to. And the questions are, why did you do that? Why would you, it's, it's presuming that you have your frontal lobe and critical thinking online. And what you know is my husband didn't even have his frontal lobe online when I was asking him why the cleats were on the damn porch. So, right. so what I'm also just sort of thinking about is how do we end up creating these meanings? How do we end up mm-hmm. staying in these dynamics? It's because we are startled into these places with people who are emotional terrorists for their own reasons, right? Right. 
people who work with perpetrators really want us to know that those people have their own level of victimization and likely abuse and reactivity and you know, mental health issues. I totally understand that mm-hmm. coming at this from the perspective of, of, mm-hmm. the, of the victims. But part of what happens is I can't see a way forward when all I'm trying to do is, is stay quiet enough that I don't disrupt the system into chaos. That's right. And then bringing back into what you've said before, the whole issue around fear. Yeah. Because by the time someone is coming to talk to a therapist or reaching out to a friend, not only are they experiencing fear, but they've truly lost, excuse me, sorry, their sense of self. I worked with a woman, well-educated attorney, very accomplished in her career in a very, very abusive and violent relationship. And she, there was a part of her that wanted to leave, but a part of her that just wanted the violence to stop. I love him. He's my boyfriend. Okay. So let's hold both of those and try to work through them. And she came to me and she said, honestly, Denise, I don't know what I would do without him. And I said, so tell me a little bit more about that. And so she said, well, I don't know how to put in my own contact lenses. She was a little taken aback. I said, tell me more about that. She said, well, in our relationship, each morning he puts in my contact lenses. Wow. And I said, how did that come about? And she said, well, I guess one morning I was having some difficulty and he said, I know how to do that. And then he just continued to do it. Wow. Okay. Here. And, and it was so pervasive, but the contact lens story just stuck out because it was so diametrically opposed to what she put out to the world. Right. 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 She was competent. She was an attorney. She was very accomplished, but her perception. Yeah when she looked inside was, I am so incompetent that I cannot even put in my own contact lenses. Yeah. And tragically, his behavior became so egregious and so violent that she did leave him and she did learn how to put in her own contact lenses. Of course she did. That belief. What that is making me think of also is the distortion around attachment, right? Like mm-hmm. that, you know, when we, when we have folks who maybe their developmental trauma is around how well they were loved or cared for, mm-hmm. there are a lot of people, men and women who have front facing, I get shit done. I'm a badass who at home want to be able to drop some of that particular part and mm-hmm. feel like they are being taken care of. And so part of part of the vulnerability, I mean it's it is a really poignant story because the vulnerability around what she was allowing and what he was choosing to do. It's almost like something out of a movie. It's so 
poignant. And the other thing that I'm thinking about is, you know, it's a very fine line, this work, because Mm -hmm. women are not believed. No, they are not supported. The fact that your brain is ill and the dynamic, the abusive dynamic between two people is like a dysfunction and an illness. It often means that when I need to leave or, or go to court or call the police or whatever, I'm not in a place where I can actually make this make sense to anyone. I'm not in a place where I can give you good memories or give specific examples. I'm not in a place. And so it's really hard. I think as the therapist sometimes to know how to support the client's actual Mm -hmm. specific needs that are in front of you because they have basic needs for safety. And then maybe even, you know, need to go to court to get the kids kind of stuff all at the same time and saying to somebody that's really dysregulated in profound grief, really terrified. Yeah. And now you need to go defend yourself in court is like not a great therapeutic process. Right. And we don't, we don't get to choose. No. And then unfortunately, many times those women or men are pathologized or how they present. And then the abuser shows up in court, all pulled together, you know, (laughs) looking all great. And the other part partner looks like a hot mess. So, so it's important too, that part of the work that I'm doing now in this part of my career is educating judges and attorneys, like almost every day attorneys, like, yeah, you have to prepare your client. Like you have to really work and not get frustrated if she comes across a little frazzled or a little anxious because she she's in trauma brain. That's right. You know, like I give a, a lot of, as you call it, the, you know, the brain talk, right? This is what's happening. They're not being evasive. They're not minimizing what happened to them. This is how trauma has affected their brain. And it's so interesting. I mean, again, you've heard me get on the soapbox of like, there's no reason why the entire world couldn't know this. Like you and I aren't living in a basement, working on special codes and, you know, can't reveal the information that we know. And it really, you know, it hurts my heart a lot when people come in and they're like, Megan, you know, I can't remember anything from the week that my son died. And I think I'm losing my mind when 50 minutes, I'm like, let me just show you what's going on with your brain is actually really adaptive. Those memories are there and they'll come back when they're, when you're ready, but if they don't, it's actually, your brain is trying not to put you in a state of trauma. The, but you lived through it and most likely you'll be able to remember it and, and being able to go to companies and sort of say like, listen, if you have really detailed work and this person just suddenly lost their husband in a car accident, I wouldn't set them up for the kind of failure that is likely going to happen because their brain is not ready to go into detailed work. Again, it's adaptive. It's trying to protect. And you and I know this because, you know, that it's a bulk of the bit of trauma work these days is to know a lot about the brain and know a lot about the body. We have so, as a therapist, so many anecdotes. Woman came in one time that she she was leaving. She was got to the point where she was divorcing her husband, who was very controlling and abusive, and he had a heart attack and he died. 
stop it. Yeah. So she had that loss because, you know, I wanted to do this. So she moved, right? She was also physically moving and she's filling out the paperwork for cable. And she's like, oh, I'll take the Knicks channel, whatever. It doesn't matter. All these sports channels. And then she goes, oh, I don't like sports. Mm -mm. I never liked sports. And she goes, oh, I don't even like TV. And now I can listen to my books on audio in the house because he's not there right so it's these little things these big things and it's just an erosion over time it doesn't even need to be some cataclysmic event one of the things that i really appreciate that you said you know you use that word co-occurring which is a, it's a clinical word to sort of say like, well, we've got this going on and we've got this going on at the same time. And I think, I think I think of grief as co-occurring with every, <laughs> right? Like we, we very rarely get just those, you know, moments, days, we very rarely get all the time that we need to grieve. And so we make it, we have to make it into sort of this ritualistic practice, something that we attend to. So when you're work, whether you're working with survivors of domestic coercion, or if you're working with someone who had an illness in childhood is being able to say when that feeling comes up, this is how we attend to it. What are the practices that you use with your clients around grief and loss? How do you help them when you are able to identify it when it is there? What's, what does the work look like? Well, I think for the survivor, because we're talking today about survivors of domestic abuse, course of control, it's a lot of education, as you said, explaining that, explaining the process, helping them to understand it, you know, looking at the power and control wheel. One time I gave a client a book to read and she came back and she was like, like every page, Denise, every page. As a matter of fact, it happened just yesterday with a client whom I suspected was in a coercively controlling relationship. And I said something about, so even when you make a decision about parent, it was talking about parenting kids, then he comes back with something else. Megan, she burst out crying. She goes, how did you know? Mm. She goes, I just thought it was, I thought it was me. Yeah. I just didn't make really good decisions. And I have talked to her about parenting all along. So I knew she was making good decisions. Yeah. But they were well-founded. And she goes, every day, if I put the plate here, he says, you should have put it here. And so we have this sense that if you have a black eye or a broken arm, then we know that it's an abusive relationship. But the wearing away yeah. is that erosion of self. So I do a lot of education around that and just hoping to find things that are not overly triggering to someone yeah. so that they can begin to notice, pause. I always do the take a step yeah. back and just observe. Like yeah. just observe what's coming up so to help them recognize it you know in their how it feels in their bodies a lot of education as you said about the brain and how it works and trauma and that and that there is 
you know, like grief, I always say to my clients, no matter what, whether it's a loss of a loved one, grief is physical. Yeah. It's in your body. And it's draining. It tires you out. It exhausts you. You're not a slacker. Yeah. Like like you were saying before, if someone's husband dies in a car accident and they get the three, maybe if they're lucky, five days off. That's very they're lucky, right? That we talk about how physical it is. Yeah. You know, and again, as you said earlier. At the time that this starts to come out for many of our clients, it's also at the time that people are expecting them to do a whole lot of things. That's right. And that's not compatible right then. Yeah. It's why we have to be educating the people who are front facing as well as the clients themselves, right? Like we're treating the folks who are struggling with their overwhelm and their symptoms, you know, and, mm-hmm. and grief, grief, you know, any sort of trauma, but, but, you know, complicated grief can often be my dad died 10 years ago and I'm starting mm-hmm. for whatever reason, I'm dreaming about him and feeling sad and sick to my stomach. It's not, mm-hmm. you know, the, the notion of like that thing happened. I had an emotional reaction. It's three months later and I'm doing better. You know, like they show it on sex in the city is so it, it does such a terrible disservice yeah, to the actual experience that people, I mean, I just sort of feel like, you know, better you're still hurt about your seventh grade boyfriend, like not giving you the right flowers for the dance, you know, better, you know, that when things are really profoundly hurtful, that we don't bounce back after five days and that we're not necessarily able to function. We don't have to make it complicated, but just people understanding we grieve and experience our lives through our body. And it is a filter that is collecting things, Mm -hmm. just like any filter that collects things. And the other piece that I say is there's no pathology to grief. Yeah. You know, some things we don't want you to harm yourself Yeah. or do things that are harmful to yourself. But even when we look at those things and we help people to decode the message, you know, in doing those things, like, okay, I suffered this horrible loss and I started drinking. Okay. Well, what was the function of drinking? Well, it was to numb myself. There we go. All right. I've been in the field a long time. When I first started, I was working with people who had serious mental illness and co-occurring substance use disorders. And I would talk to them and hear about their, their lives. And they all had trauma. And I remember saying to people back then, and this was like in the late nineties, um, what's up with this trauma connection? And they're like, that's, that's just an excuse. And now we know <laughs> way different. Oh no. Like when you Gabor Mete says, when you see addiction, you're seeing trauma. That's right. I think Dick Schwartz's parts work is so helpful. Yes. So for people who don't know what I'm talking about, internal family systems, essentially what it is, is we all, we have all kinds of different parts that come in. And some of them are like, I don't know, your friend from college who every time they come over, they make things worse. But we have these parts that, that work to help us manage. And I think it's really helpful to say to folks, you have a strong addicted part that comes in to help you manage feelings. And you know what? It works. It also, right. 
It also has a, a subset of shit that it causes, but its ultimate job is to get you out of those feelings. I'm just going to say this because I think therapists sometimes can accidentally use all the words I have discovered because someone's going to email me what, you know, you guys use that word pathologize. What do you mean by that word? And, you know, pathology just means something that's wrong. <laughs> that's really all it means. Pathological cells are cells that don't look like what they should look like. When you're going to see a pathologist, they are looking for a problem. And when we're saying don't pathologize, what we mean is don't call it a problem. Don't tell the person that they are wrong and bad and that their, their coping mechanisms are bad that say to them, you are going through something, you are doing the best you can, you are suffering with your limited tools. How can we build up your tools so that you don't have to drink, that you don't have to rage, you don't, you know, whatever. You have another choice, have yeah. a choice. That's right. Can I ask you a question just because it's, it's in my mind, you and I started talking about sort of like, Hey, off mic, how's your practice going? How's your work going? And what I said to you was, Oh man, I'm really trying not to do my work. I'm 20 years in the field. And this is really the first time. And, and it's co-occurring with my mom dying and, and my work shifting that I have found the trauma work really burdensome. There is an ongoing lie out there in the world of therapists that we are taught how to do the kind of work that you are doing so that it doesn't get in and it doesn't dysregulate us. That is not true. There is no class in social work school. And I have heard therapist after therapist say when a little baby therapist raises their hand at the conference and says, you know, how do you do this work? It sounds really hard. And the therapist inevitably says, well, we're taught coping mechanisms and we're taught how to, and I want to know what, where the hell that class is. Cause I've never taken that. It's never been offered to me. So can you just tell me this work you are describing is the heaviest what, what are your tools for offsetting the burden of the grief that you carry? Because you actually see more of the pain, I think, than sometimes they're able to even know because they're in it and they're, mm -hmm. you know, they're not feeling those feelings, but you're able to see it. What, how do you do it? Well, like you said, we didn't learn it in grad school. That's for sure. But why do um, we lie about that? We lie about it. All I don't even lie about it anymore. I'm an but old. Don't therapist. you hear the therapist lying? Don't you hear them say what I'm saying? Don't they say it? They're like, oh, well, we were taught. You know, there's these skills that you learn. Like, what are they talking about? Reiki? We are not taught. We just like hope that we bubble can baths. Bubble baths. I actually. Oh, oh please. All the self care that Oprah. She, uh, Oprah herself gives us an eye mask and some lavender lotion. And we use that every day. And yeah, what, what helps actually for, I think first and foremost for therapists who do this work, even though I'm a solo private practitioner to have a, a tribe. That's right. Okay. You need yeah. your tribe. That's right. Even if they don't do the same work that you do. Okay. The, we have to acknowledge that this work is going to change us. One of my dear colleague friends who's worked in the domestic violence field, I think since she was three, you know, like literally right out of college, yep. Yep. social work school. And she said, I know it's not good when I'm sitting at a friend's wedding and I'm looking at the bride and groom and going, hmm, oh, what shit. Did her? Oh, shit. right? And she's like, well, well where, where's that yeah, coming? That's not right. That's not, that's not right. right. 
So she said, that's when I know I need to step back. I need, that's when I know, you know, so it's also checking in with yourself, having your tribe, checking in with yourself, being, having other things in your life. So say with my work with friends of guest house, I actually provide clinical training, but I don't do one-on-one work with the women. So doing a lot of training and workshops and educating other therapists is another way of helping to manage like, okay, we're in the, we're in the dark, but we don't have to stay in the dark. Let's light some candles around here. Okay. I'm a big candle person. Love a candle. Little Irish Catholic background. Love right? a, oh, me too, sister. I love a candle. Love, I love a votive. <laughs> right. Paying attention to that. Balancing, you know, when being really careful when my kids were younger. Like I said, they're grown ups now, but just, you know, stay out of the dark side. Yeah. <laughs> my son invited me to go see a movie with him one time. It had Denzel Washington in it and he knew I liked Denzel and we sit down and he starts to like be watching the movie. He goes, oh, mom, I'm sorry. He goes, this is like work. I just thought it was a Denzel movie. So many people say to me, have you watched this? And I'm like, nope. And I'm never going. Oh. <laughs> Look, it's so good. I'm like, no, never going to do that. What I'm going to watch is like an English last in the countryside. has just inherited a home. And there's a nice looking gardener, you know, in the yeah. Stanley Tucci. that's perfect you know I want people to really listen to this because I think I think what you are delineating is actually not just the script for a trauma therapist it's a script for anyone in their emotional life and what I heard you say is one you got to be aware of your own emotions right and so that I bring up the word alexithymia to people all the time do you have an emotion wheel do you know all the words for all the emotions that are out there can you spend a moment paused with yourself and people who have childhood trauma, this is hard. I don't assume that people can do this, but can you go in, find the energy currents in your body and come out and say, it's sadness, it's anger, it's frustration, okay. it's whatever, to be able to do parts of your work, but maybe at different layers, different depths with more boundary that also, I really love that because it does, it, it, I think what we sometimes see is like, well, I'm overwhelmed, so I got to tap out. I'm overwhelmed, you know, I'm overwhelmed by my kids doesn't mean you run away from them. I'm overwhelmed from my kids might mean you go upstairs and they make their own grilled cheeses for dinner. And then we try again tomorrow. tomorrow. (laughs) I really like that. But the one that I think is the most important and that we use in grief and loss work all the time, particularly because you said that word, I'm kind of siloed. You know, we are siloed as individual practitioners. We're siloed when we're grieving because really you're the only person that is doing that grieving. There's a a quote that I use in a lot of the workshops talking about vicarious trauma, secondary trauma, which you're going to get working with control, domestic, you're going to get it with trauma. And that it's from Rachel Naomi Remen, R-E-M-E-N, and the, the quote is, we cannot walk through water without expecting to get wet. Yeah. It's, it's, it, it is beautiful. And she, she's written several books. She's a medical trauma survivor. She had a lot of medical issues oh, wow. when she was a child. Mm. And, you know, again, 
it was long before they had uh, child life specialists in right. hospitals. Yeah, right. got it. They put you in the hospital and told your parents to come and get you in two weeks. Right. But, you know, again, she had a lot of support. Her book is My Grandfather's Blessings. So you can see um, having that community, having that connection and really increasing our own awareness around the effects of trauma on us. Yeah. And knowing when we need help, when, when yeah. we need to go to talk to a therapist, when we need to connect with nature and spirituality, therapists need to be mindful of this. The, the individual that you're working with doesn't need your supreme knowledge. That's right. That's right. They need to hear, so what do you need? And many times our yeah. wonderful clients will say, I don't have a freaking clue. Yeah, that's right. And, and, then, then, you oh, we an idea. and yeah. then we go, okay, let's, let's work experiment. That's right. Let's experiment. Yeah. I'm going to send you the link for a, a book by Lisa Ferentz. And it's about rediscovering. It's a book for clients. Amazing. Well, for anybody, it's a book for anybody about really, but it, it comes from that trauma-informed perspective about like getting to know yourself again. Yeah. We caught sometimes we'll label it and we'll say, oh, well, she became so codependent when she was in that relationship. So Lisa Ferenc, who we both, you know, you work with her. She is extraordinary. For people who are interested, we'll, I'll put a link to her website. She does, there's webinars, there's clinical work. The thing I will say about trauma work is that it's, it's tough. You, it, there's not a lot of it that you can just say to the layman, like here, here's a book and you can just jump in. You know, I feel like Bessel van der Kolk's book is, is kind of as good as it gets. I know a lot of people have read it and, I, and I'm grateful that it exists, but the, the diciness about trauma work is that I think I'd been trained in three different modalities before it really just sort of like locked in. So when I'm saying that, what I will remind people is that I'm really responsive in my emails and if, and my DMs. So if people have questions, they want to get in touch with Denise, we're going to put her information in our, in the podcast notes and everything that we've talked about today will be in the podcast notes, but I am really grateful that you are a doing the work that you're doing, particularly the education and the ad advocacy work, but also that you brought this part of the conversation to the world of grief and loss. Because I think mm -hmm. a lot of what we think about when things are really chaotic is survival. Mm -hmm. And we forget that if you only survive and don't process through some of the feelings, you are still the person in the trauma. You're just right. not right? You still have the meaning of the trauma inside your system. And that grieving is really a part of the process of laying that down with what you survived. To just really solidify what you're saying, the whole point from being a, a body-oriented psychotherapist was having someone say to me after they had left abusive controlling relationship, she said, I sat down one night and I was watching TV and she said, I noticed I was holding on to the end of the couch. There was no one else in the house, but I made myself so small. Okay. And I was scrunched up against the arm of the couch. 
And she said, you know, you're always saying to me, so notice what's happening in your body. And I'm feeling it now as I'm yeah, talking. Yeah, me too. Right? And I said, okay, so what happened? She said, so I remembered the, you know, you say, okay, let's just open up the, take a breath, roll your shoulders back. And she said, it was so hard. Yeah. And I did it. That's right. She said, in my dream, you know, my goal is to be able to spread out on my couch and watch whatever show I want. Right. And that's, you know, that's a gorgeous life goal. And I love this reminder. The healing. Right. The healing is in the body. The healing is in creating the possibility that you can take up all the space that you want. And that trauma, trauma therapy isn't you know, I always say in my office when I'm doing, you know, trauma work, it often looks more like, like a physical therapy session, because what we're doing is we're inviting the body to embody a different kind of energy. Yeah, absolutely. You are so generous to give us so much time in this conversation and to reschedule with me so many times over and let me bring this conversation to the platform. I'm so grateful. Well, I'm so grateful that you are open to having this discussion so that we can continue in our role as educators and advocates to help people heal because people do heal. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. And thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I would love it if you are enjoying what you're hearing. If you go over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review, it really helps folks find the podcast. And the reviews are important in terms of like the algorithm of getting the podcast out there.